Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, some conservative insiders are saying that Premier Doug Ford is planning on shuffling his cabinet soon. Local Member of Parliament David Sweet is angered over his legislation being ignored by the Parole Board of Canada. And does Canada need a single-payer national pharmacare plan? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, Toronto Star is reporting, and now others are picking this up, that uh, Premier Doug Ford is uh, about to make a, a, a cabinet shuffle. Uh, apparently, it's in response to the fact that he is, uh, well, not doing well in the polls. As a matter of fact, even a Toronto Sun poll that was released this morning uh, has him at 29%. That's a far cry from the 40% that uh, that he had about a year or so ago when he first got elected. Uh, he seems to think, I guess, or his advisors seem to think, that uh, that if he shuffles the, the chairs on the Titanic there, that it's going to stop sinking. Not so sure about that. Uh, is this just par for the course, or is there is there actually some magic in, in trying to do something like this to try to regain public support? Richard Brennan's been there, done that uh, for years, of course, uh, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give his read on this. Uh, Badger, how are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Yeah, surprised by this announcement? It's not, it's not official, but he's uh, he's not commenting on it. So, but where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not surprised that he'd be looking at this point in time a year into it, uh, you know, changing up some of the horses, quite frankly. Um, one I think he's going to be looking hard at is Vic Fideli, the finance minister. Really? I think there's every chance that he could be demoted. That that doesn't happen. Finance ministers are usually untouchable. It rarely happens well, in cabinet shuffles. I know, but just think about it for a minute. If you stopped the average person in the street and said, what do you remember about that budget? And I bet you 90% people at least would say, cuts. Yeah. And the fact is, it's so ironic because their spending was actually almost $5 billion more than the WINS final budget last year. So they're spending more money and getting grief because Fidelity and the critics within the party are saying, why didn't you have a page in the budget that spelled out exactly what you were going to, what was good, the funding cuts that were going to be made instead of burying it hitter and yawn in the in the uh, in the budget? And that's I think that's where one of the major complaints are coming from. Is they're saying these are people on the inside are saying it's death by a thousand cuts rather than you know pulling off the band aid all at once and saying okay here we're going. We're going to cut, you know, uh, we're going to increase teaching time. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to cut funding to this and that. And then it's done. But no, this is this has been kind of, you know, piecemeal. And I, and that's why I, I, I believe, truly believe, that's one of the reasons they're so low in the poll, because every day, practically, there's something new coming out that says there's another cut. Well, and we've covered those stories as they've come up, and you're mm-hmm. right, there does seem to be one on almost a daily basis. But if, if Fidelity is uh, is on the chopping block here, and that's where it's just speculating, I yeah, understand well, that. Uh, is is that just shooting the messenger? Because, I mean, wasn't he delivering exactly what his boss told him to deliver? Well, that, yeah, but you know what? They, you know, they, uh, they're not going to fire the Ford, so, you know, somebody's head's going to go. Yes, you're right. But that's not the way it works. And and also, I mean, he, he's become a lightning rod. And I think you're going to have to look to other lightning rods in, into, in the, his cabinet that may be on the bubble, like uh, Lisa Thompson with, with all the uh, education uh, you know, fiasco that's been going on. You know, she, she could possibly be demoted. And, you know, she, again, she's just doing... She's doing, you know, the, the, you know, she's just following marching orders, if you will, from the uh, center. But on the other hand, you know, did she handle it well? Is Vic Fidelli handling well? Are other ministers handling their, you know, their portfolios and doing a good job? You know, despite all the criticism they may be getting, that's what you have to look at. 
it's interesting. I, I understand that. This is like when a hockey team's doing poorly. You know, you don't fire the team, you fire the coach. That's right. Uh, but, and but you're not going to fire the coach here because you know that's the premier. You don't fire that. That that'll be up for us to do. I guess or whatever is going to happen in four years' time. But but here's the here's the thing that, that I found frustrating about this whole thing, uh, and this is this is obviously very much tied, I think, to the, the population, popular polls that we've seen here. Uh, and there have been seven of them released over the last few weeks, and you and I have talked about them every time they've come out. And he keeps going down and down and down. His personal uh, approval rating is down around 29%. That's actually below that now. It's it's less than what Kathleen Wynne had. And, uh, the, as I said in my blog this morning, the much maligned Kathleen Wynne, uh, he's actually below that. Now, I don't know Doug Ford, uh, but it's got to bug him uh, because he's made a habit ever since he decided he was going to run for the leadership of the PC party to surround himself with the, with people that are going to clap and applaud. And we already know the story, of course, that apparently even his caucus members are told that they have to stand and applaud every time he makes a speech. Uh, he just got a double dose of reality here. You know, the, the public's not buying the stuff that he's sending out there, and that's got to be very troubling for him. Well, uh, it's interesting to see that some of the, some of the cabinet, or not cabinets, but the MPPs are starting to push back. And they're now pointing a finger at Dean French. Again, I, I've never met Mr. French. I think I've seen him before. But he, you know, his iron fist way of running things and, and berating and, 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 down, uh, and dressing down MPPs is, is legendary now. And, and, they're, and they're starting to push back and saying, you know, you've got to rein this guy in. This isn't the Soviet Union, and I'm using words that they use. Well, is he on the firing line? Uh, because, I mean, look at our prime minister's had to dump his chief of staff. Stephen Harper had to, to dump his at one point. Uh, they, they are their lightning rod, and they are the conduit, really, for the, the boss and, and the caucus, really. It, you, know, you want to get to the premier, you've got to go through this guy. And apparently it's not going well. And I've heard the same stories you have, that there are a lot of MPPs are blaming, or complaining, rather, and saying, look, at this guy's the problem. Well, well that's just it. And... I think, and you know, I don't think there's anybody right now with where they are in the polls is is assured of their their job because they're looking to turn this around. I know it's only a year in, but they've got to start turning this around. And so, I, you know, is Mr. French's job on the on the bubble? Who knows? But I'm not saying it isn't. There's just there's no guarantees right now that. Anybody at the end of this at the end of this shuffle is, is going to have the you know going to have the job that they have right now. Sure, there's certain there's certain ones that you know will be capped. But on the other hand, if you're if you think that your maybe your job might be on the bubble, well, you can almost guarantee it that it is. It's it's almost as. <laughs> It's like the guys that have, not that they've committed a crime, but you see all the, in all these movies, you know, and they say, okay, we have to have a fall guy. Somebody has to take the fall for this, and it's not going to be me, meaning the premier. Uh, so he's got to pick one or two people and say, okay, you're to blame for this. Maybe if I switch you guys out, everything will be good again. Well, it's it's really shuffling the deck chairs in, in some ways because, I mean, there, there, he, has a, he has a bunch of backbenchers that, you know, I'm sure there's some qualified to move up, but you know, there's it, we're only a year in. Some of these people are just finding out where the washrooms are now. So you really can't go to the back bench right now. So you have to have to look hard, maybe on, on people you think that might be able to do the job if you bring somebody from the back bench. And that's a, that's always a, a tough decision. Or you look to the your your solid performers in the cabinet now. And maybe they'll move up. Uh, you know, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking in, in one case of uh, you know the Treasury Board President Peter Bethan Falvey. Falvey, uh, he's you know he's considered a pretty solid actor, and God knows maybe he'll be the the new finance minister. Who knows? Or maybe they'll just a lot of this stuff is just to you know scare the heck out of people and scare them straight, so to speak and that they'll start pulling up their socks. Who knows? But the point is, something's going to happen. What that something is remains to be seen yet, but there's going to be changes. There's no question about that. But when you look at the polling numbers, uh, and, and when, let's, as I say, there's a consistency to just about every poll that's been done now, including the one that came out in Toronto Sun today. Uh, do you really truly think the people that are expressing their, their angst about this government are about the personnel? They, hey, we don't like who they'll find it. Or is it the policies? 
I mean, because everything that we've talked about, everything that's been reported, as you mentioned about the cuts, uh, you know, we've had people involved in the, in whatever it is, healthcare, education, uh, autism uh, spectrum, all of those things, and they're the ones that are complaining. It's it's not just the media that's going after the premier; it's the people that are going to be impacted by this. And I think that's starting to resonate with the public. Well, absolutely. But you, every, it's a skill. Being able to deliver bad news is an absolute skill. You know, it's that bitter medicine that you maybe you know with a little sugar that you can help help people swallow it and that's that is the skill there's there's been lots of cabinet ministers in the past and and will in the future who are able to deliver that and not drive people crazy and that's where the fine line is you you put a person to deliver the bad news and say you know do your best and you know it's not going to be easy or or do you just make them cannon fodder you give a cabinet minister a direction and say, this is what you have to do. It's going to be, it's not going to be easy. Knowing full well whether they do a good job or not, it's it's not going to sit well with the public. And, and they'll often just, uh, you know, throw them overboard, for the, you know, and tell the public, at least try and show the public, yes, we heard you. We're going to get rid of him or her. Would would not the first thing to be done here, if they really want to recapture some of that support that they had a year ago, is is cut the BS out? <laughs> uh, and I'm talking about not just the premier, but others. Uh, you know, for instance, tearing up the beer contract. Uh, when the minister Fidelli announced that a while ago, and I had Vic on the show that next morning. And he said, don't worry, no, no, we can pass legislation, and, and that means the contract is null and void. Well, I've talked to a lot of lawyers that said that's not the case at all. I don't know where he's coming from on that. No, but, but that's the message they're trying to get out there to try to assuage our concerns about this. But it's not the right message because it's not true. And he's done that with other policies, and not just Fidelity, but other ministers as well, where they are either deliberately misleading the public or they just don't know what they're talking about. And either one of those is a pretty concerning idea. Well, that... That's uh, what they did, uh, I guess, last weekend or a couple weekends ago now, is that, that the hard press on getting all the ministers and cabinet or MPPs to go to their corner store and pitch this, pitch this uh, you know, beer in the corner store and make it sound like it's a utopia. You know what? That fell flatter than skunky beer. I, I talked to people, you know, like Tories, and they said they just did not sit well with the public. So it tells you this whole this whole fascination they have with beer is not is not uh, catching fire with the public. It just isn't. I mean, people now can buy beer in, in grocery stores, and be more and more grocery stores as things go on. It's just not a major issue for people, and somehow they they are convinced that it is, that it's a grassroots issue that people will, will latch onto and, and that'll be the greatest thing, but it's not. And, that, and I think that's one of the things they're starting to realize now is that it just, these kind of bumper sticker issues that they're grasping at just aren't flying. Well, and I don't know who's giving them the advice on this, uh, but actually, as you go through that budget, and, and most of us have it at one time or another over the last couple of weeks since Minister Fidelity delivered this, uh, and it was the Premier's promise, by the way, once again, that don't worry, nobody's going to lose their job. Well, about 800 teachers are probably going to lose their jobs as early as uh, two weeks from now. Uh, so, And people hear that. But who sat there and said, look, I know these cuts are pretty drastic, but boy, the, the public's just going to eat this idea up of a beer in the corner store, so they're going to forget about all that other stuff. I mean, that's that's a rather naive approach to politics, I think. And and somebody's got to get back on track here and say, look, we've got to be honest with people. If this is what you're going to do, then explain it to them. And you're right. I mean, if you can't tell the story, uh, people are going to make their own conclusions. And we've seen governments get in deep, deep trouble by doing exactly that. Well, that kind of, like, kind of thing, like beer in the corner stores, it's fine if you're flush with cash. Yeah. If you if you have you know if if things are going well you know the money's coming into the province and, and by truckloads that's fine you can you can do things like the beer in the corner stores but when you've got a huge deficit and you're seeing cuts you know cuts in education well not financially cuts but teachers losing their job and possibly thousands of people losing their jobs in, in the beer stores if that goes ahead and 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the James Street uh, crawl, getting their funding cut. It, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's like a wave, and it's just hitting everywhere. When that happens, people could care less about these little picayune things, if you will, uh, that they seem to have grasped onto, and like the beer in the corner stores. People, people don't care about that. Sure, is all people. I can't speak for all people. I tell you, but people have other interests. They're looking for steady as you go government. You know, uh, just mind the store. Don't be doing anything goofy. And I think every government should stand back and and understand that the people don't really need you to do anything crazy. Which I think is the major criticism we've heard from people. I'm, even those that are, are, are trying to remain fiscally responsible about this are saying, look, I can understand that you had to do something, but not this drastically, not not all at once. And uh, I don't know. Can they hit? I got a minute left here. Can these guys hit? The, they're not by any danger of losing power here, obviously, because the next election's not for three years. But can they hit the reset button and start to gain public support again? Yep. They can. Easily done? Not not easily done, but they can, and it's been done long lots before. Governments were you know, low in the polls, and they you know they struggled, they struggled, and they made you know and put out the message. It's more a message than anything that you know we're we're not we're not we're sorry, but we're we're you know, we're gonna we're gonna put our noses to the grindstone, and we're gonna do the job that you want us to, and that's what people want to hear, and. If they get that message out and it, and it resonates with people, they'll be back up there. Well, if he's going to hit the reset button, according to what you've heard out of Queen's Park, he may actually hit the delete button a couple of times first. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Okay, thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, formerly uh, Queen's Park uh, reporter and uh, columnist uh, for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A local member of parliament is angered uh, about legislation that, uh, well, has been on the books for quite some time that apparently is not being adhered to. Uh, when it comes to the parole board and the uh, amount of time between hearings for possible parole. Uh, David Sweet is the MP for Flamborough Glanbrook, and uh, well, he knows what he's talking about because it was his private member's bill. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain. David, good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, good, Bill. Good morning. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about this. Well, when I heard this story, I, 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 was, I was very troubled because, uh, like you, I have talked to the, to the two specific families that, that you've been dealing with in the last little while. Uh, about two celebrated murders, and uh, we've, those people, of course, have been tried, they've been convicted, they've been put to jail. Uh, but the, the, the suffering for the families uh, is apparently continuing. Yeah, it, it is, and uh, the, the whole purpose of the bill that uh, I drafted and was passed unanimously through the House, uh, through the Senate, uh, it was examined by uh, a dozen lawyers, uh, the federal ombudswoman, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, Senator Boisvenu, uh, we, we worked on this collectively to make sure they got the bill right. The purpose of it was that when there are offenders, and we're talking about very, very serious offenders here, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Criminal Code and the, uh, the Conditional Release Act identify those, uh, when there's a, a, a person who's been convicted of a very serious crime and there's little to no uh, effort to rehabilitate, then uh, this bill was designed to give the parole board the tools that they need to extend the time in which someone can apply rather than manipulating the families and continuing to put them through hardship, even though they have no intention of, uh, of reforming. Well, in one of the cases, uh, well, we'll be specific. One of the cases is the Rollo uh, trial. And, uh, I, you know, in the way of, uh, you know, showing any remorse or anything, he still hasn't admitted to doing anything, uh, which right off the bat, I think pretty much tells you the character of, of how the, the hearing would go. But but you were specific about that. Uh, the, the previous, maybe we should, in the way of background, David, say that before your private members bill, the previous policy was every two years there there was the possibility of a parole hearing. And my understanding is is if uh, if if the uh, the the incarcerated individual requested this, that the parole board was bound to actually do something about that. But you addressed that with the bill, didn't you? That's correct. And in fact, in in this case of the Rollo case that you just mentioned. Uh, in the last parole board hearing, I was there, uh, and uh, we witnessed the parole board at that time uh, who said to uh, John Rallo that uh, after they had given their reasons for denying uh, parole, they said specifically, we'll see you in five years. 
so they had sent a clear message, and and one of the reasons why they sent that clear message to him is that they repeatedly the family has only asked for from Rallo where he where he hid the remains of their nephew. Uh, so he, he he killed his wife and his two children, uh, the, uh, the which was the sister and the niece and nephew of uh, of the, the victim's family. And then Jason's uh, Jason's body has never been found. That's correct, and all they've asked for is for him to and uh, to tell them, and uh, he won't do that. Uh, in fact, uh, in most of the time that I've been there, the number of uh, Paul Bird hearings that I've been with uh, John Rollo is uh, he uh, doesn't doesn't take any responsibility at all. Uh, the other, of course, is the Lovey family. <clears throat> Excuse me, and we already know about uh, that tragedy, of course, with the Edwards family, uh, and Lovey is is incarcerated. Uh, and, and so you did the private memories bill. As I say, David, you got unanimous uh, consent for this. It passed into law. Uh, certainly, the parole board members, I assume, read this thing. Why is there some confusion now? You know what? Uh, I think that's uh, the parole board needs to be accountable in that regard. There shouldn't be any confusion. Like I said, the the uh, the individuals that were on a parole board at the time of the last hearing three years ago for John Rollo clearly said, "See you in five years." They understood the legislation and the way it was drafted and uh, why there would be some new decision at the Pro Board of Canada now uh, is a mystery to me. So uh, I'm doing everything I can. I, I handed, uh, I sent it electronically, but I handed uh, a letter directly into the hands of uh, Minister uh, Goodale and Minister Lametti yesterday, Justice and Public Safety, and made it clear that uh, I would like them to take action immediately to address the situation with the Pro Board of Canada, and I, I hope that... Uh, They'll be uh, vigilant in that regard. Because uh, there's a there's a double whammy at play here, I, as from from what I can see, what the parole board is attempting to do. Uh, first of all, as you say, the five year period is not over yet, so I don't know why they're even scheduling a hearing. They're they're saying that they're bound to do this, and your bill specifically says no, they're not. Uh, it's at the discretion of the parole board, uh, and that's that's one of the concerns I think that a lot of people have right now, uh, because of the, the the pressure that it's putting on the families and and the survivors in situations like this to have to go all the time. And we, you know, you've talked about this. I've talked to our, our good friend Susan Claremont from the Spectator, who's covered many of these hearings uh, about the angst and and the frustration and the trauma that's caused to the families every time they have to do this, which I think is actually one of the, the main reasons for you, for you drafting that bill in the first place, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, we're very, by the way, we're very fortunate to have a journalist uh, like Susan who really is able to demonstrate to Canadians who haven't been victimized like this what happens. And I, I think your listeners need to know that when a family loses a loved one, particularly in a violent fashion of the way these two families have, and of course they haven't just lost one loved one, and there are multiple in, in each case, um, they feel a dedication to to that person who's gone or persons to make sure that the justice is done for the rest of their living days. And so they have this inner conviction that drives them. And every time the uh, the, con- the convicted one uh, manipulates a system like this, it, it just brings them back to the original pain of it. The, they, they feel an obligation to make sure that they have a, a victim's statement. It's profoundly emotional. I can't, I can't explain uh, to your listeners what it's like to be locked in a room with the, uh, uh, the convicted uh, person who's uh, done this, these heinous crimes and, uh, and, and to be able to uh, tell the parole board exactly how you feel about the offense that this person has done and what damage it's done to your family. And I know when, when these terrible crimes occur, and just even the fact that we were talking about this and reading about it over the last couple of days, David, brings back some terrible memories uh, for you and, and for me. But how, yeah, just think about how the families are going through this, uh, this same thing all over again. Uh, we understand that. And I know there were people that uh, at the time when we talked about this uh, during the, uh, the, the trial, the Lovey trial for the, the murder of the Edwards family, you know, uh, you know put them in jail, lock them with, you know, and throw away the key. We all know that, I mean, okay, that may be you know, rhetoric that goes on at the time, but there are, there are charter rights and even for people that are convicted of murder. But you checked all those boxes with this private members bill. It's not as if you're saying, no, the guy can't have parole hearings. You said, here are the parameters for it. And there's some okay. discretion now with the parole board. And, and exactly. It, you, you, in other words, you, you did everything. As you say, you, it was vetted through legal circles as well. So I don't understand why there's a, 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 a some misunderstanding here on behalf of the parole board now. Yeah, and I, I, I again, another point I think I need to clarify. We're not talking about people who, uh, have, who have realized the damage that they've done, have, uh, 
have apologized, have taken every course, have have demonstrated that they want to be contributing citizens again, that they're going through the process of rehabilitation, that, uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, particularly in these two cases, but in any case, where where people haven't taken a responsibility, are not remorseful, have not pursued the appropriate programs to uh, facilitate their uh, rehabilitation and reentry as a as a contributing citizen into society. These are the people that we're dealing with, and and we're giving and we're and we're not even and we're not nowhere near where you're saying of you know lock the door and throw away the key. We're simply giving the parole board some tools to be able to say, hey, you know, this person should not have the same rights as someone who's pursuing. Uh, rehabilitation with vigor and wanting to make sure that they make a difference and are truly remorseful and and saddened and and sorry for what they've done. Part of the pressure, and maybe what we need to talk about here, because you've attended some of these hearings, uh, David, is is what the family has to go through. Uh, They're notified, uh, that seems to be the protocol, that okay, so-and-so is going, whomever it's going to be in this particular case, Rollo or or Lovey, they're going to have another hearing. it's incumbent upon the families because they promised uh, that they were always going to do this to, to do a victim impact statement, which of course is reliving this whole thing all over again, uh, and and to have to do this every couple of years or really at the whim of the incarcerated individual, it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. No, and it's uh, again as I mentioned earlier, it's a uh, it, it's hard for any individual who hasn't gone through it to understand what it would be like to sit down and write out a statement about all the pain that it's. Uh, is caused you individually and then your family members. Uh, it, it's just, um, it, it's gut-wrenching. It's something that uh, I think, frankly, takes years off your life with the, the stress that happens. And I've seen some of the emotional carnage that's happened from these kinds of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, that again, that was the purpose of the bill to at least limit that so that uh, people would know that um, they, they there was somebody in their corner who was, trying to eliminate some of the pain that uh, they continually go through uh, in the memory of their loved ones. And and long-term pain as well. I mean, you know, Don Edwards, of course, uh, the son of, of the murdered couple, uh, is quite candid about the fact that he's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of this. Uh, and we talked to Don at the time, and you, can just, you can't even imagine, David, the, 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 you know, the angst that they're going through and the stress that they're going through, and now they have to relive this all over again. Uh, now, I know you've sent the letter off to the minister in charge here, and uh, what's the process? I mean, uh, can they act on this quickly? I mean, can they cancel the meetings, which I, I guess is within their purview if they, if they feel so inclined? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that the minister will read the legislation and do the right thing. I, it's obviously uh, in their hands. It's uh, uh, because of the way the, the criminal code and the Conditional Release Act uh, kind of interplay together. I made sure that I, I gave a copy of my letter directly to both the Justice Minister and the Minister of Public Safety. Uh, one of them will, will need to make the decision and communicate with the parole board, and uh, hopefully we'll have a good resolution here on uh, it remains in their hands. Uh, there's, they're the ones that can make it happen and uh, draw the attention of the Pro Board of Canada to uh, the legislation that gives them the, the tools to uh, delay this. Yeah, I, I, and you got to ask yourself. I mean, who's who made the call here in the first place? That's. It's. I'm. I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't Minister Goodale. Obviously, it doesn't go that high for something like a request for a parole hearing. But somebody obviously decided that this was with you know within the rules, and this was according to Hoyle. And it certainly isn't. I mean, they, they, you know, the legislation wasn't passed last week. It's been in play for a few years now. Yes, yeah, since twenty since twenty fifteen, and uh, you know, certainly we. We know who did not make the call. It certainly wasn't the uh, two members that were on the parole board at the time when they said to John Rollo, see in five years, because they were clear on what the legislation meant and uh, and the tools that it gave them. Are, have there been changes, personnel changes on the board since then? I would imagine so. Yeah, there, I, I'm not aware of exactly how many, but I'm certain there are because these are governor and council appointments. Okay. As, far as, as far as the members of uh, that actually are at the hearings, I'm certain that most of the uh, officials are still the same in the Pro Board of Canada. Yeah, well, even if it's a new member, relatively new member, they all go through some sort of orientation, and you would have thought that as part of that orientation, they'd bring them up to speed on what the regulations are and what the, the existing laws are that pertain to this sort of thing. And obviously somebody dropped the ball here, or somebody's ignoring it. Yeah, they go through intense training, very, very intense training. I'm aware of that because of uh, some of the Pro Board members I've known, and uh, and they've told me uh, that that's the case. So, uh you know, like you said, it certainly wouldn't be because uh, they're ignorant of the, any of the facts. 
So there's a, there's a bit of a time situation here too, uh, the sensitivity to this whole thing, uh, and obviously the you know this has started the whole thing rolling again. But the clock is ticking. How soon do you need to hear back from the minister to either that they're going to do something about it or that they're not? I guess. So I hope that's not the answer. Well, I'm 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 going to stay in contact very regularly. Um, obviously, the house rises next week, but I'm going to use uh, the next uh, ten days to make sure that the situation stays. Uh, uh, top of mind for both ministers, and uh, make sure that uh, we get a favorable decision. And you're right, time is of the essence, because I believe that uh, the victim services called uh, one of these families and said that the hearing is in July. So, But this is uh, this is not requiring any legislative changes. I mean, it's it's not as if you're asking a minister to change a law or to, you know, to take a, a segment out or to add something in. Uh, he can do this with a phone call. I mean, really. It, it, it's a, I mean, it, if he got the letter yesterday, he could act on this before they go for lunch today if he really wanted to. Well, that's what the, that's what the legislation's there for. I mean, uh, it gives, it gives uh, the parole board all of the uh, rights and privileges, just like any legislation does, to act on it and, uh, and, and do what the last parole board hearing members said to do and wait for five years. Is, is this the first instance where this has happened? I know these are, are people, of course, that you know and have been dealing with in the past. Uh, but, but you wonder, with the number of hearings that go on at parole boards, if somebody else is trying to pull the same situation. Uh, uh, and, and you have to ask yourself if there's a precedent set for this. Yeah, I, I certainly am not aware of any other situation, and, and I hope there's no precedent being set. I, I'm, I mean, there's not. Uh, these are very serious offenders, and, and again, they're uh, offenders that uh, have shown little to no uh, desire to rehabilitate so there's not um, fortunately there's not a lot a lot of those and uh, uh, but these are the only two cases that I'm aware of and uh, that's and again because the legislation was passed in April 2015 uh, then we're just uh, about four years out now well, we'd like to think that they're going to act swiftly on this, and uh, it seems to me to, to be a no-brainer. I mean, it's, it's simply a matter of, Mr. Minister, could you look at this legislation again? They seem to be uh, at loggerheads here with the parole board members, and it's, it's you know, I know you're not trying to embarrass anybody here on the parole board. It's just a matter of, of getting something clarified and understanding exactly uh, what the rules and regulations are. And, uh, you know, just say, okay, fine, cancel the thing. I mean, this is, this is, this is not trying to move mountains here. It's a matter of simply for the sake of the families that are involved in this uh, to do the right thing. And by the way, as, as Susan has written about in, in past columns, uh, both individuals here, both Lovey and Rollo, have day passes. I mean, it's not as if they're behind in solitary confinement. I mean, they've, they've already had some success in, in the process as it's gone on. Uh, they're simply looking for the, the parole that, to, to be all of a sudden out of this situation. Uh, and I'm not so sure that they even qualify for that, And was, which begs the question, why do you have to have a hearing before the five-year term? Exactly, Bill, and you're and you're right. I'm not I'm not looking for any punitive measures or anything towards uh, anybody who's made the decision. Let's just do what's right. Uh, let's do what's right for these families and uh, what's just for the process. Well, uh, good luck with this, David. Uh, certainly, we'll be watching and we'll see what comes out of Ottawa in the next little while. And uh, you and I will be talking about this in the future. I'm sure. Thanks for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. David Sweet, of course, the uh, member of Parliament for Flamborough and Glanbrook. And uh, I'm I, it for me and for a lot of other people that that have experienced uh, what happened when these two heinous crimes were committed. Uh, and and the, the, we talked to the families and the, the stress that they go through. And all of a sudden to see that rekindled uh, in, in a fashion like this, uh, as David said, it's just not fair. It's, it's unfair to those families to have to do this, especially, as you say, when question one, every time there's a parole hearing, and I've talked to members that sat on the parole board, question one is always, you know, are they remorseful? Uh, are they penitent? Or do, in, the, in Rollo's case, do you even admit that you were guilty? And if the answer is no, unless something has changed, then th- there's no reason for a hearing. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. So hopefully, hopefully the minister will respond to this. I know that there's red tape and everything that's involved in this, but but this this is easy peasy. Just get it done, Mr. Minister, please. We'll let you know as soon as we get uh, an update on uh, this particular file. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins addressed the media. Uh, they have finished their report now. This, of course, is the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare. And uh, this plan uh, could reduce patient access to drugs, according to some insurers. Uh, you would guess, of course, that pharma is not going to be very blown away by this. They've got some concerns about this, but others do as well. This, actually, the report uh, is, is getting mixed reviews, uh, depending on whom you talk to politically and uh, obviously in the business world as well. 
let's uh, get into this and find out exactly what's being proposed and whether or not it's even doable and whether or not it's even affordable. Ian Lee from the Spot School of Business at Carleton University joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to discuss this. Hi, Ian. How are you doing today? Uh, morning, Bill. Doing just fine, thanks. And any surprises in what Dr. Hoskins talked about yesterday? No, because he has, I've been following um, his, from the time he was appointed by the Prime Minister to head up the Advisory Council, he's been, uh, he's given interviews and um, and he's made his views very clear even before when he was in provincial politics, when he was the Minister of Health in the Wynn government. He was always very clear that he supported universality or universal uh, pharmacy uh, uh, program, pharmacare program, and so there was no surprise at all that this is that this was what he was going to recommend. Yeah, that's one of the things I've heard too from a number of people that have analyzed this. Is is they started with a conclusion and kind of worked backwards from there. Yes, yes, and that's the flaw. That is the flaw. That's the major flaw. In fact, it's a catastrophic flaw, and I'll explain what I mean by that. There is there are two fundamental ideas in the report. One is there's 20 percent of Canadians who need help who can't afford the drugs that they need to take. I fully accept that statement. There's lots of evidence, not just from their committee, uh, advisory report, uh, committee report, but from many other sources. Well, there's the uh, studies that have been done that there are, some say it's 10%, some say it's somewhere between 10 and 20, but let's accept the outer, I think that's the high limit, the outer limit, 20% of Canadians. Uh, the McDonald-Laurie Institute that I've published for suggests it's 10%, but let's go along with it and say it's somewhere between 10 and 20, and I'm willing to grant that it's 20%. Then the second fundamental thing they say is, therefore we must give free drugs to everybody, not the 20%, 100% of Canadians, but A, B contradicts A. In other words, if we really do believe, and many of us do, that 20% of us really do need help, how on earth can you justify diverting scarce public resources away from the 20% who need help to give free drugs to high-income Canadians, because that's what universality means, everybody gets it, including professors that make a quarter of a million dollars a year. Many do, by the way, and I know that. I'm a professor. Uh, medical doctors who make a half a million to a million dollars a year. Superior court judges who make over 300000 or a third of a million dollars a year. Uh, MPs and senators who make in the uh, top quintile, top 20% of earnings. How can anyone justify diverting scarce public resources away because they're scarce. Public resources are not infinite. They're, they're finite, which means they're scarce. And so how can we justify diverting it away from the people that need help to these very high-income Canadians who do not need help? And, and I'm one of them, by the way. I, I absolutely do not need free drugs uh, from the Governor of Canada or the province of Ontario. I mean, I just think it's shameful, shameful that we're discussing giving free drugs to high-income people that don't need help. And that's the major flaw I mean, enormous. This is the catastrophic flaw in this report. It's not the idea that let's enhance the support for the 20 percent. It's that let's let's run up the bill. And by the way, they said it's 15 billion. I don't trust their number. The Parliamentary Budget Office, non, completely impartial, published a major report, landmark study, about a year ago, and they estimate it's going to be north of 20 billion dollars a year to give free drugs to everybody. And Kevin Page noted that's the equivalent of 2% increase in the GST. And this report also did not discuss where is another $20 billion going to come from. Well, we know where it's going to come from. It's going to come from more taxation. So what we're saying is let's increase taxes on everybody, maybe a GST increase or maybe just a personal income tax increase, which will affect everybody so that we can give drugs, free drugs, to very high-income Canadians like as I said, doctors and senior public servants and, you know, CEOs of companies and so forth. And there is just no justification. I cannot imagine or contemplate or discover any justification for giving free drugs to high-income Canadians who do not need help. In fact, almost all of our social programs are targeted. Not anybody can get subsidized housing. You have to be below a certain income threshold. Not anybody can get social assistance or social welfare. You have to be below a certain threshold. Only people that can get unemployment insurance are people that are unemployed. And, and we even agreed 
that, that old age pensions should not be universal because Prime Minister Paul Martin, when he was in, clawed back and set a claw back at about 119,000, saying, you know, people above 119 should not be getting OAS. It's 100% clawed back. A GIS, Guaranteed Income Supplement, is, is geared to income, tied to its income tested. Uh, even the Quebec, with the famous $5 a day daycare, finally took it back from the rich people, the high-income people, and made it income tested because it was extremely expensive and was squandering scarce resources on people that did not need it. So, you know, there's no justification, in my view, for going down that road of giving free drugs to high-income people like me or Dr. Hoskins. It's interesting, uh, because I know they tried it at some statistics yesterday as well, uh, and Canada is the only country with the universal health care system that doesn't also have covering prescription drugs. Others have done this, uh, but, you know, is, is this an apples and or- uh, to apples comparison to suggest that other countries have Bill, done this? I'm sorry, I have to very strongly disagree with you, and this is part of the, the, part of the, the, the deception that's been put out by this committee. We're the only country in the world that doesn't have a pharmacare. That is phooey. As I testified before the House of Commons Finance Committee three weeks ago, that is factually false. I'll repeat that. But you heard Dr. Hoskins say that yesterday. He is wrong. CAIHI, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, a government agency set up by Paul Martin when he was Prime Minister, publishes all the statistics about health care. It's an amazing source of data. And they publish an annual report called Prescription Drug Spending in Canada. And they show that 43% of all the prescription drugs in Canada are paid by the provincial health care ministries. We have not one, but 10 pharmacare programs in Canada. 10 plus three territories is 13. And almost half, 43% is approaching a half, of all the drugs in Canada are already paid for by provincial ministries of health and not by the individual and not by private insurance plans. And so it is just simply, it's a misrepresentation of fact to say that we do not have a pharmacare program in Canada. We have 13 pharmacare programs in Canada that pay almost half of all the drugs in Canada, of all the prescription drugs in Canada. And so, you know, now they're targeted. The provincial system, and there's been studies out by the C.D. Howe Research Institute on this, by the Fraser Institute, by the McDonald-Laurier Institute, McDonald-Laurier Institute, as well as academic studies showing this. And it is just simply false. It is factually false to say that people do not get government assistance for pharmaceutical products in Canada. It is not true. And if anybody doubts me, they all they have to do is Google Canadian Institute of Health Information um, annual prescription uh, spent drug spending in Canada, and they'll pull up the report showing that it's been there for many, many years, and and uh, and it continues. So that's not even accurate. And by the way, yes, if he means that there's universality in the other countries, so okay, the elites have managed to uh, uh, <laughs> exploit the non-elites with free drugs for the for high-income people. But that just is, that means that we should not be following a bad public policy in another country just because a bunch of them have adopted a bad public policy to give free drugs to high-income uh, uh, people in that country. All right, I want you to address another thing that they talked about in this report as well. And you just touched on it, Ian. There are 13 programs right now in Canada. Is there any benefit to, to saying, okay, everybody under one umbrella, in other words, one national program as opposed to 13 individuals? Well, first off, um, I don't. I don't think they can because healthcare is provincial under the under the Constitution Act. In fact, he even said we've got to get the government, the provinces, to come forward. Healthcare is administered provincially in Canada. It is not administered federally. Yes, the federal government supports through transfer of money. They transfer money annually to each province for uh, for healthcare, but they do not administer or fund the healthcare system. OHIP, we're in Ontario, of course, but every province has its own OHIP. In Quebec, it's QHIP, and I imagine in BC, it's BCHIP, uh, and, and AHIP for Alberta and so forth. Um, and, and they fund our health care system. We pay through our taxes, as we all know, uh, for our hospitals and for going to vi- visit a doctor and for surgeries and any kind of medical treatment of that kind when you go to emergency. It's all paid for by OHIP. And so... When they talk about a national plan, what they're really talking about is, is getting the ten provinces and the three territories to agree to a common plan, but it would actually still be 13 plans because it would be administered by each provincial jurisdiction. Ian, when's the, last time, when's the last time those ministers got together and agreed on anything with the federal government? 
Well, that may be, but that's their choice. You know, yeah. just because the federal government doesn't like the fact that there's differences of opinion, and that's, I think, what they're saying. Anyways, I mean, but the larger point is, if they're saying they have done a terrible job, I, <laughs> I said half of, almost half of all the prescription drugs in Canada are paid for by provincial ministries. And the other thing we haven't talked about, there's two things that really were not, were ignored in this report. One is, how are we going to pay for the, for the, the program? The Parliamentary Budget Office says it's going to be 20, north of $20 billion a year. So are we going to raise GST by 2%? Is that what we're going to do? And the other thing that we haven't, he was absolutely silent, and I don't want to talk about this at all, is if this goes through, it's going to throw thousands and thousands of people out of work who work in the employee benefits insurance industry. I, at Carleton, am insured through Great West Life. I have friends, including my, my partner, who was in the government of Canada for 35 years. They're employed, they're insured through Sun Life. And these insurance companies employ thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians across Canada who provide these insurance plans to employers. And remember, there's 4 million people in the broader public sector in Canada, per stats can, out of the 18 million Canadians employed. And I can assure you, every last one of us have some sort of a benefits plan that it deals with prescription drugs. And so, and, and, and likewise, people in large corporations. And so, what I'm saying is they're already covered. They have a 20% copay. I have a 20% copay. In other words, I have a drug. I pay the 80% goes to Great West Life. 20% comes to me. But we're, we're well covered. And, and so, again, the idea that, that we're not covered is not accurate. But more importantly, are we really going to blow up an industry and create very serious unemployment amongst thousands of Canadians who have good jobs? This is shades of Bob Ray back in 1990 or 91. He was going to bring in insurance, auto insurance, and he found that it was going to cause pink unemployment, it was called. Huge numbers of support workers in the insurance industry were going to be thrown out of work. And that's why he backed down, was because he didn't want to be throwing out thousands of people out of work. And why, when in the latest poll I saw, 85% of Canadians that have drug plans through their employer are happy with it. I'm one of them, by the way. And so why do we want to blow up something that's working? Well, which begs the question then, where is the discussion about... Uh, 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 I, I, every time I use this phrase, people go a needs-based study uh, to say, "Okay, you know, you don't need it, Ian. Bill, you don't need it. Uh, you over there, yeah, you need it because of your income situation. You're one of that twenty right. percent that can't afford prescription drugs. Uh, right. Let's help these people." But they don't seem sure. to want to do that. It's got to be one size fits all. Well, I, I don't agree. I don't agree. We already have an income-tested, uh, means-tested uh, system in Canada, for, at the, in the ten provinces and three territories. Everyone agrees it's means-tested. There's no dispute about that. That's not an opinion. And so what we're really quibbling over is the extent of the coverage. Okay, let's make it more generous. So maybe we have to up the income threshold. Uh, so instead of whatever the income threshold is, I don't qualify, obviously, but uh, for those, for wherever it is, so we have to increase it to ensure that the 20% who are inadequately covered or not covered are covered. And that would bring up the total bill to probably, I'm just, this is back of the envelope now, but it would bring it up to over 50% of all the prescription drugs in Canada, because right now 43% are paid for. So if we add the 20% of Canadians who um, the uh, Dr. Hoskins says are, are inadequately covered or not covered, well, that'll bring up the total spending by the provincial governments to over 50% of the population. So uh, that that's the way to do it, is we target it. As I said, Every other social program, save and accept health care itself, which is universal, I fully acknowledge that. When I testified before the House of Commons Committee, I was asked, well, isn't there a contradiction in what you're saying? I said, no, because when you go first, there's two reasons why I support universal health care. And I'm just going on a sidebar here, just for a moment, Bill. Sure. Number one, 85 over my lifetime, if you look at successive public opinion polls over 40 or 50 years, between 85 and 95% of Canadians support the single-payer Canadian model of health care. So first and foremost, even if you hate it, forget it. It's over. The debate is over. We've got it, and it's staying. That's the practical argument. The, the better argument is we can't expect people to bring in their tax returns or some equivalent demonstration of income every time they go to visit the doctor. So because of that, or go to the, uh, for, a, uh, for a medical procedure. So because of that, 
those reasons, we made it universal in 1965 when it was established. Fair enough, I have no problem with that. But prescription drugs are a different issue because there you can measure it very precisely. A person either has certain income or not, and then they get a card from OHIP, or OHIP is now doing it. OHIP now determines whether or not you qualify for free drugs. And if you do, you get free drugs. I mean, there's nothing complicated about this. The mechanisms are in place. The measurement protocols are in place. You just change the the amount that you will cover up to. I'm talking the income level you'll cover up to. Mm -hmm. That can be done very easily. It's expensive, let's be clear. And why the provinces, I'm assuming, have not increased the coverage level is because it is frightfully expensive, and all the provinces are pretty well, in, pretty well all the provinces are in deficit, and it's only projected to get worse. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why they, why they haven't. But there's no reason to prevent the federal government from simply transferring under its transfer, annual transfers to the provinces, to increase the transfer to allow them to increase the coverage uh, for uh, low-income um, or under, underinsured Canadians. Uh, yeah, which is something under the purview of the finance minister that yet that didn't seem to be part of the conversation. Uh, it's it's a different perspective on this, and that's why I was glad you had some time to come on and talk about this today, Ian, uh, because all we get, and you know, when we get these reports here, is is the spin on this about this is a great that's idea. Right. Uh, the costing is always questionable, and I, I've talked to some of my yeah. colleagues in the, in the media over this last little while, and they say where did they get the fifteen million from? Uh, they, you know, it just it seems like an unrealistic number. So I, can I just say very quickly? Yeah, yeah I got about. 30 seconds left, yeah. Okay. I'm very skeptical of that number. I've worked in the government of Canada. My late father was 40-odd years in the government of Canada. My partner was 35 years. The government of Canada is a wonderful place, and there's good people there. But anybody who tries to tell you that the government of Canada is the center of economic efficiency in Canada does not understand how government works. There's all kinds of red tape that's deliberate you know, checks and balances and so forth. And governments are very good at delivering benefits, but they're not the, the, the source of economic efficiency. And so the argument that they're going to cut billions out of our health care costs boggles my imagination, knowing what I know. And I've worked in government of Canada also in a previous career. And I just do not believe they're going to hit those numbers. In fact, the PBO flatly contradicts them and says it's going to cost over $20 billion a year. Uh, and that's a disease that infects just about anybody in government, despite their political yeah. stripe. Uh, Ian, Precisely. thanks again. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.